would ask that we remain standing for the reading of Scripture this morning, which is our custom, believing this is not the word of men, but it is the word of God given and providentially preserved for us. Uh, We turn back to Mark chapter 5 this morning as we continue the exposition in the Gospel of Mark, straight talk about Jesus Christ, and we'll be reading verses 6 through 13 this morning. The Gospel of St. Mark chapter 5, beginning at verse 6. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshipped him. And he cried out with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God that you do not torment me. For he said to him, Come out of the man, unclean spirit. Then he asked him, What is your name? And he answered, saying, My name is Legion, for we are many. Also he begged him earnestly that he would not send him out of the country. Now a large herd of swine was feeding uh, there near the mountains, So all the demons begged him, saying, Send us to the swine, that we may enter them. And at once Jesus gave them permission. Then the unclean spirits went out and entered the swine. There were about 2,000. And the herd ran violently down the steep place into the sea and drowned in the sea. And we'll end our reading of the Holy Scriptures there this morning. Please be seated. Are you like me that you are wowed? by the special effects imagery of the wizards of cinema. When I go to these movies and I see these fantastic special effects, they look so real, and I'm I'm wowed by them. I'm entertained. But I'm also careful and conscious that we need to be guarded, that we don't think of the supernatural elements in the Bible and in Bible stories, just like the one we read this morning, as another type of fantasy or science fiction. When I'm reading to you this morning out of the Holy Scriptures about Jesus confronting a man that is possessed with demons, do you think that's a fantasy? Do you think that's a mythology? Do you think that's just some kind of fiction? Or do we really understand there's something supernatural going on here beyond our human ability and that we must understand and we must trust as what Scripture says is going on and being revealed to us? There is a necessary distinction between reading fiction from human imagination and the supernatural elements in the Bible, in Bible stories like we have before us this morning. And that necessary distinction is intensified through visual effects that are sensory fooling and depicted as reality. I know my senses can be fooled. Uh, I've been in uh, amusement parks and stuff where you're going through. I remember specifically in one, you're, you're on, in a chair and the chair is moving on a conveyor belt and there's an image before you of ice boats just zooming past you on a frozen lake, and there's air conditioning on, and then there's a spray of water. And you get the sensation that you're on one of those ice boats. Your senses are fooled. And you can close your eyes and you can remind yourself, no, I'm just sitting in a chair in a conveyor belt going through Disney World. But your senses can be fooled. And we need to be cautious and careful about that. Um, I don't think it's being an alarmist to sound a warning concerning the trend in sensationalized technology that increasingly pushes the envelope both experimentally and morally between the natural created world and artificial intelligence in the sinful quest to create an alternative reality. It's very much like a postmodern Tower of Babel. In every generation, there are those who rise up and say, God is dead, the gospel's passe, Jesus wasn't real, it's all a fable. In every generation. So that's not new. What is new is that now there is the added technology that is increasingly 
pushing with artificial intelligence to try to recreate or try to create an alternative reality. Now, we may think that most of that's limited to entertainment, but I want to warn you, no, it's not. It goes far beyond entertainment. There is experimentation in attempts to try to move into the field of biology with technology. And we need to be very aware of that, and we need not be uh, blinded. Uh, even though we may be astounded by the technology, we still must maintain a, a moral standing from the Holy Scriptures. The Word of God is applicable. It's not passe. It's not limited to 2,000 years ago. It gives us guidance and it gives us answers for the moral dilemmas that we face today, even in terms of rising technology. As I said, the postmodern Tower of Babel. Well, we continue in Mark chapter 5 this morning where uh, we have uh, both uh, symbolizing and revealing to us Jesus' authority and power between the natural world and the supernatural world. This is one of the major challenges that we have from Holy Scripture. It's been denied often, and in our day it's also denied, the supernatural. We are in a, uh, unable, in terms of our own human limitations, to fully grasp or to know or, or to, um, uh, um, lim- uh, to um, know the full extent of the supernatural. It exists. We're not safe in trying to figure it out on our own. We need the revelation of Scripture to tell us about it. And that's what we have before us uh, here this morning as well. Remember chapter 5 of the Gospel of Mark? As the Gospel source being uniquely Son of God. That's where Mark started in chapter 1. Jesus, Jesus, the Savior. He is the anointed. He's the Christ. He's the anointed one of God. He's ultimately and uniquely the Savior, because He is the one sent to us from God. He is Lord over the living and the dead, even between this world and the other world. That includes the supernatural. We said the first story here in Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20, is about the Gerardine man possessed with a legion of demons. So as Jesus passes over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, to the eastern shore, so He divinely transcends the natural world and the supernatural world, with his presence and power over the living and the dead. That's what's symbolized to us. Jesus passes from uh, the western shore over to the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. Now, that's a real sea, and Jesus was a real person in a real boat going across the sea. But there's something symbolic here, too, that we need to understand. When Jesus arrives on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, on the eastern shore in the natural world, the first thing that he encounters is an evil presence of a legion of demons from the supernatural world. So I don't want you to miss that. So the passing over the sea was symbolic. It's symbolic that Jesus is Lord of the living and the dead in the natural world and in the supernatural world. This story here in Mark chapter 5, particularly dealing with this demon-possessed man, this story magnifies and personalizes the meaning for all of those whom Jesus delivered from being demon-possessed, and he saved their souls as witness to the gospel. We've, we've read many times of Jesus delivering and restoring people. He's cast demons out. I think we need to add to that and recognize that in so doing, Jesus is showing power over the living and the dead and that Jesus is redeeming their souls as he cast out the demons. Many of them are unnamed to us. As a matter of fact, this man whom Jesus saves and uses as a witness, we'll see next week at the end of the story, uh, leaves him as a witness to the gospel there. His, he's not even named for us. We don't know his name. But he is a redeemed child of God and a powerful lesson and a powerful reminder to us that magnifies and personalizes the meaning of being saved through the power of the Lord Jesus.
So the point should not be missed that Jesus' saving power reaches lost souls even from far away. Remember when Jesus landed on the shore, this man was far away in the tombs. And he was compelled to run to Jesus and to fall at his feet. As a matter of fact, we were told that this man was beyond human restraint. They tried to put him in chains and manacles and he broke them. He lived among the tombs, among the dead remains. People were afraid of him. He screamed. He would have these screaming fits. Uh, It was a terrible and frightening situation. But what it shows us is that what is beyond human ability is not beyond the power and the reach of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I told you last week, don't give up on those for whom you're praying. We may have within our own families, within our extended families, within our uh, connections at work or school, we may have those that we know are on on the road to death and destruction. Maybe they are um, uh, addicts in terms of of drug use or, or alcoholics, or they may have other problems or difficulties or struggles, and they seem to be past and beyond human ability. They're not beyond the reach of Jesus to save them. So don't stop praying as long as they are alive. Never give up praying. I think the disciples were ready to jump back in the boat and and get out of there when this man came running at them, uh, terrifying and screaming the way he was, you know, dragging the chains and all that was going on. But he wasn't beyond the reach of Jesus, what humans could not do. So don't lose that. Don't lose the focus of this. We get all wrapped up in the demon thing. And we're going to talk a little bit about that this morning. But Jesus was not, he dismissed it. What we are so wowed and what we're so interested in, Jesus says, be gone. You know, go to the herd of pigs then. But he didn't stop with this man. He saved this man. He restored him. The next thing we read next week is this man is in his right mind clothed and sitting at Jesus' feet saying, let me come with you. Jesus says, no, you go witness for me here and there. That should be a great story of encouragement for us that we not lose sight of what Jesus does in reaching lost souls that are beyond human help. Even the compulsory testimony of these vile demons to Jesus' transcendent godness is separated and purified in the souls of those he rescues and saves so that Jesus supernaturally sees through and beyond this world and the other world. So there's a challenge here about this man running and falling at Jesus' feet and worshiping. The scriptures say he worshiped him. He was prostrate. He fell at his feet. Some say that that was just a, a, a uh, a manifestation of the power of Jesus that this man was just struck down in his presence. But that's not what the scripture says here. It's not what the text says. I think what we need to understand and appreciate is that Jesus is able to separate out the humanity of this man from the presence of the demons. That's what the rest of the story is that we're going to look at this morning. How amazing, how astounding, how awesome that although divinely transcendent, Jesus permeates the worlds of his creation, natural and supernatural, human and superhuman. And yes, when we read about this man, we know that there was something going on beyond humans and that he was able to do the feats that he did and and to live the way he did. There was something else going on, but it wasn't beyond the power of Jesus to save him. So we look more specifically at verses 7 through 13 this morning, a passage that I read before we started. So Jesus' divinely transcendent power is indicated by his compelling subjugation from a distance of this man and the demons. While both the human and the demonic are tangled up in this man, Jesus is able and intent on saving the man and destroying the demons. I mean, that's what I want you to see this morning. 
Jesus is able to disentangle the human and the demonic in this man. And Jesus saves the man and destroys the demons. In verses 7 through 10, let's just read over those again and then I'll make some, uh, point out some things to you. In verses 7 through 10. And he cried out with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you, I adjure you, I put you before oath of God uh, that you um, do not torment me. And he said to him, Come out of the man, unclean spirit. And then he asked him, What is your name? And he answered saying, My name is Legion, for we are many. Also he begged him earnestly that he would not send him uh, out of the country. And so this is the encounter that Jesus has with the man. The text states that the man has fallen in worship at Jesus' feet and is loudly crying out, but it is with the demon's words of irrepressible witness to Jesus' divinity. We've seen this over and over again. When the demons come into the proximity of Jesus, they, even the people that they possess, they fall down and they confess that Jesus is the Son of God. So here the man rushes to Jesus. He is compelled and subjugated by the power of Jesus from afar, from where he was in the tombs. And when he falls at Jesus' feet, he's crying out, But it's the words of the demon that speak, and they speak with this irrepressible witness that Jesus is the Son of God. But they are trying to hide within this man. And so I want to point out to you a couple of things here. If you'll look at uh, verses uh, 7 and 10, you'll see that there is this conflicted use between the first and the third person singular, I, he, and then the first and the third person plural, we, them. Look at... um, Let's see, look at verse 7. And he cried out with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God that you do not torment me. And then look at uh, verse 10. Um, Also, he begged him... Let's see, is that the one I'm looking for? Um, And he begged him earnestly that he would... Uh, not send them. Yeah, I'm sorry. That's it. Yeah, he would not send them out of the country. And then back when he says, what is your name? And he says, uh, he asked him, what is your name? And he said, uh, he answered him saying, my name is Legion for we are many. Well, I don't want to confuse you, but what I think is very interesting here in the text, there is a conflict of, of use between the first and the third person singular and the first and the third person plural because the human and the demonic are mixed up in this man. Only Jesus can separate them. That's the point that I'm really driving at here. That Jesus separates and saves the man while he destroys the demons. So Jesus turns the table on the demons by his commanding authority while separating their identity from the man himself. Once again, we said what is humanly impossible, what can't be done by humans, Jesus is able to do. We need to understand that salvation is a supernatural act of God. It's not self-improvement. It's not doing better. It's not getting a, a, a moral lease on life. It's not just turning away and saying, well, I did some bad things, but I don't do those anymore. That's not what salvation is. Salvation is a supernatural change of heart from the inside out. It changes the way we think. It changes the way that we speak. It changes the way that we act. And J- Jesus is the one who is able to dis- disentangle in this man the human from the demonic. Now, we said... Uh, this man was a sinner not because he was possessed by demons. This man was a sinner because he was born of the children of Adam, like you and I are. He was a sinner by nature. He was a sinner by his acts as well. Jesus is saving him from his sin, but he's also delivering him 
from the powers of darkness. So Jesus uses no formula for exorcism. He does not gain power over demons by divining their secret name. That's one of the things that's built up as a superstition about exorcism. And that's not what is taught in this script, in this passage or in elsewhere in scripture. There is no formula for exorcism. It's Jesus' power. As a matter of fact, it's the demons that express the formulaic saying, you are the son of God. You're the holy one of God. They're the ones that can't uh, resist it. They are irrepressibly uh, bound to confess who Jesus is. Jesus doesn't need a formula. He just says, come out and be gone by the power of his word. He doesn't try to divine some secret name that he might gain power over the demons. When he asks and commands the demons to say who they are, they tell him, but it's not with a name. The answer given, legion, is further uh, indicated, not as a secret name, but as a description. It says, uh, my name is legion, for we are many. Now, although technically the term legion was used in the Roman military for a unit of 6,000 soldiers, it was also used in common discourse, like you and I would say, meaning many. Well, there was a legion of bees in my attic. It doesn't mean that there were strictly 6,000, it just means there was a lot of them. More than I want to get stung by. And so in common language, the term legion meant many. And of course it's used that way here. And we don't need to press some kind of literalism on the text when we're told that there was about 2,000 pigs and the demons went off into the 2,000 pigs and the pigs ran off the cliff and drowned in the sea. That doesn't mean that there were three demons for every pig. We don't have to, we're not, we're not pressed with that kind of forced literalism in the use of language in scripture. When, when Jesus asks and commands these demons to identify themselves, they identify themselves not by name, but by description. We're many. There's a bunch of us here. And when we're told that there was a herd of swine, there was about 2,000. Well, that's a round number. You know, there could have been a few more or a few less, but it were, there were about 2,000 pigs over there. That's the common use of language. And that's how we need to understand the scripture. So once again, the biblical text clearly separates the man from the demons so it is not a mistaken primitive superstition that this man had some case of, of multiple personality disorder. Again, this is an attempt to mislead and to falsify the teaching of Scripture regarding the supernatural. That somehow what was an old superstition we now better know about and we can describe this in terms of psychological evaluation. Well, this man had multiple personalities. No, he didn't. This man was possessed of demons. I know there are more questions than answers for this. I don't have all the answers to tell you other than that Jesus has power over the supernatural and the supernatural is real and demons are real. But he tells us we're protected from them. He tells us that we are under his care. He tells us that we have what is more important than all of that and more powerful than all of that. He who dwells in us is greater than he who is in the world. Who has given us to dwell within us but God the Holy Spirit. And so this is what he's telling us that we need to recognize. Don't fall for the claim that of human psychology that it can answer all the remedies and find the, the, the source of evil. The source of evil is an original sin and in the devil who tempted and who guided that original sin from the beginning. He was a liar and a murderer from the beginning. You know what the devil is today? He's what he was in the beginning. A liar and a murderer. He's a deceiver. Satan, the accuser. He's defeated. He's an outlaw on the run. Jesus has come to destroy the works of the devil. He manifests for us in the Gospels his power over the devil and the demons. That's why I think these Gospel stories are so important. That's why I take them as Gospel truth. 
Jesus has power over the living and the dead in this world and in the other world. Jesus has power over the supernatural. We don't deny that it exists. We limit our understanding of it to what Scripture tells us. You need to understand there is not a one-to-one correspondence of human to demon and demon to animal. People, again, draw out many falsehoods and superstitions and suggest to us that there must be a one-to-one correspondence. Well, we're told in this instance there was a man who was possessed of many demons. I don't know why. I don't understand how that happened. I understand what Scripture tells me, that it was so. And that Jesus has power over them, whether it's one or many. Jesus has power over them. And we need to be careful. There's much speculation about the morality of the destruction of the pigs. Where where this man's redemption is before us, and Jesus disentangling him from the wicked forces of evil and the uh, possession of the demons, and Jesus saves him and restores him. And people get all caught up about, well, what happened to the pigs? That's not really a question of of Jesus' morality. We must not assume here, as many have, that the the owners of this uh, herd of swine or the keepers or the herders were Jews in violation of Old Testament uh, laws. We're not told that in the Scriptures. In this area where they were uh, settlers, there were both Jewish and Gentile settlers. We don't know who this uh, herd of pigs belonged to. We don't know who the herders or the keepers were. We can't make an assumption that they were Jewish and that Jesus sent the uh, demons into the pigs to punish them because they were violating Old Testament law. That's not what we're told in the text. So let's stay away from that. We don't know. Okay? Uh, There's another concern here about, well, what about the pigs? Was it immoral for these pigs to be destroyed? The, the, The demons went into them and they ran off the cliff and drowned in the ocean. It seems like that was immoral for Jesus to do, to harm these pigs. Well... I want to tell you this. This does. We need to understand that pigs are not evil animals. They're just animals. Okay, and the fact that they were uh, possessed of these demons and ran off the cliff and drowned in the ocean doesn't mean that they were wicked animals, or doesn't mean that demons can um, possess animals to do harm to people. That's all superstition. I know it makes popular movies, but it is not true. Okay, so let's limit ourselves to what Scripture tells us here. I don't know what happened to the demons after the pigs drowned. I expect what happened to them is what they were pleading Jesus not to do, sending them back to the abyss. Not having a host, I expect by the power of God they were sent back to the abyss, awaiting eternal judgment. Because that's what I believe. I believe that the fallen angels, including uh, Satan, the devil, are under God's authority. And I believe that he has banished, as we're told in Scripture, the majority of them, reserving them in the abyss, reserving them, as it were, in a prison, and not letting them roam around. I know that there are some that roam around following the prince of the power of the air. I believe the devil is a real created being. I don't believe in just some kind of... uh, uh, personification of evil. No, I believe the devil is a real created being. He's not the brother of Jesus. He's not a part of the Trinity. He's a limited created being. He does not share the attributes of God. It's interesting, Jesus had a showdown with the devil in the wilderness, we're told, in uh, chapter 1 of Mark, 
and in the other Gospels. And here we're told that there was a legion, there was a bunch of demons in this man, but the devil wasn't among them. He doesn't share the attributes of God. He is a spirit being. I know that that, that he exists. But his existence is one who is defeated by the Son of God. I like to refer to him as a cosmic outlaw. He's on the run. Scriptures tell us to resist him. To flee from Him. To commit our mind to the Scriptures. To fill our mind with the knowledge of the Word of God. And I've told you many times, the only Spirit you need to be concerned about is the Holy Spirit. That's what we look to Scripture to teach us. We believe what the Scriptures say. So as the balance of this story shows, we'll look at it next week in verses 14 through 20. Jesus delivering and saving this man in body, soul, and spirit reveals His saving power, transcending the natural world of creation, including humans and animals, as well as the supernatural world of spirit beings. That's where the emphasis is. The emphasis is on what Jesus does for this man and what you and I can appreciate. Now, I've never been demon-possessed, even though I was a sinner. I was a sinner in rebellion against God. I was a sinner in need of His saving grace. I was a sinner who needed God to subdue me and to come find me, like C.S. Lewis said, dragging me, kicking and screaming to Himself. Others have grown up in covenant family and have um, confessed that they always, as far as they can remember, loved and and, uh, confessed the Lord Jesus, but know that they're a sinner that needed to be saved by grace. So we have these different testimonies about how we have experienced and how we testify to the saving grace of God in Christ. But we share one thing in common. Jesus is our Savior. We profess Him. We believe in our heart and we confess with our mouth that God raised Him from the dead and we have received His righteousness that makes us right with God. We are justified by faith. And so we don't look into the superstitions of men and the imaginations of men to try to Uh, captivate us we should be cautious about that we should also be cautious in terms of the morality of experimentation that i mentioned in the introduction this morning in terms of biology and what people are attempting to do with artificial intelligence just because there is some human ability to do something doesn't make it morally right scripture gives us the moral guidance for these things you do not address the question of infertility in humans by destroying um, conceived and fertilized uh, fetuses. You know, that's one of the things that often happens with in vitro fertilization. And I, I hope I'm not hurting anybody's feelings this morning. But it's not okay to fertilize ten eggs and to destroy nine and keep one. I believe life begins at conception. I believe the incarnation of Jesus Christ teaches us when life begins. When the Holy Spirit came upon the Virgin Mary and she conceived the human nature of the man Jesus in her womb, united with the second person of the Holy Trinity, the Son of God. When did life begin? Not after the first trimester, not after Jesus was born, but when conception took place. That's what I believe theologically is the answer for the beginning of life. Life begins at conception. And just because we can technically do something doesn't make it morally right to do it. So we need to be very careful about that. But God's grace extends and His forgiveness overcomes even our failures and our limitations and our mistakes. This man was saved from a legion of demons. I really don't even know what to say about that. Why was there a bunch of demons in this one man? 
Somehow they were attracted to him. I told you last week that Matthew tells us there were two demon-possessed in the tombs. I think they were gathering to him. I think the power of these demons was a power of attraction. And they were attracting and drawing other wicked and evil-possessed people uh, into a gang. But Jesus stopped that. Why did more than one demon possess this man? I do not know. But I believe what Scripture tells us. I also believe what Jesus did. Jesus, in his power, spoke the word and commanded him to leave. All of them. None of them could hide. None of them could get away. Of the legion that were in there, all but one of them? No. Not all but one. Not all but two. Not all but three. All of them were expelled and sent away out of this man. With one word from the power of Jesus. Be gone. Get out. Go away. So, often the biblical stories about Jesus challenge us with more questions than we're given answers. I don't think that's a bad thing because in God's providence, this is intent to grow our faith by trusting the triune God about things seen and unseen in this natural world and in the supernatural world. Is God trustworthy? Do you trust God this morning? Do you trust that Jesus has come and has destroyed the works of the devil and he has ascended back on high to the right hand of his Father? There he reigns and rules. He is in control. He is in power. We believe that. Sight unseen, we believe it. We see evil in the world. We see many wicked things. We see the hatefulness of humanity displaying itself in violence and wickedness. You sometimes shake your head and wonder, how could a human do that to another human being? And I know sometimes we want to write that off and say it's the, it's the influence of, of uh, demonic possession or something. No, I just think it's the depths of depravity. Unrestrained sin turns people into monsters. And you know, that's celebrated in our popular culture. Unrestrained evil and power. I'll say again, I'm concerned. I'm concerned about popular entertainment. I'm concerned about the video games and their graphic depiction of how they depict humanistic, humanoid-type figures. Call them zombies, call them whatever you want to do, mutants, whatever. They look like humans. They're just gross and super-powered, and you blow them up into bits. Does that desensitize people to real humanity? There's a question about that. I don't have the answers for all of that. But I do know that what's very important is that we be under the Holy Scriptures. And even though there are more questions that we have answers, that we have our conscience raised to the reality that humans are created in the image of God, that Jesus came to save humans, that we should have more interest in the salvation of humans than we have in demonic powers or supernatural or other uh, things, even in reference to artificial intelligence and the growing attempt to create an alternative reality. The reality is we need salvation from sin. And Jesus is the Savior of the world. That's what we must always preach and confess. So whether it's the devil, and Jesus had this encounter with the devil, as we talked about in Mark chapter 1 and in the other Gospels as well, whether it's with the devil or with one demon or with a legion of demons, I want you to notice that it was by the power of the word of Jesus' command. That was what defeated these demons. Jesus didn't need to get into a wrestling match with them. Jesus didn't need to come up with some kind of formula or come up with some kind of magic spell or or try to define their special name or their hidden name. All Jesus said was the power of his word, and they were gone. 
Here's another reference that I find amazing. This is when Jesus was in the garden and they came to arrest him. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They said to him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, and and, and this is in the Greek text, I am. The the he is added there in in reference to the, um, the pronoun. But literally, the two words in Greek are, I am. Jesus said to them, I am. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. Now when Jesus said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now, in the gospel accounts, we're told that there was a cohort that came out to get Jesus led by Judas. A cohort is technically about 500 Roman soldiers, but we're told that this was a mixed group of, of uh, Roman soldiers and uh, temple guards. They came out with torches and with swords and with clubs. So somewhere around 500 of them, of, of, of hardened ruffian mercenaries, they were getting paid for their service in the army, They came out for one uh, itinerant preacher-teacher. And they come out and they ask for him to be identified. And when they come to Jesus and they ask, Who is Jesus of Nazareth? And he uses that powerful name for God, I am. And what happens? Their face is in the dirt. 500 or more of them laid out by the power of the word. But yet their hearts are darkened because they get up out of the dirt, probably staggering around, grabbing their implements and everything. And now they come back and they're trying to figure out, what do we do? And Jesus volunteers. He gives himself up. He surrenders. Because he'd been in the garden praying and sweating blood, as it were, saying, not my will, but your will be done. You know how Peter tried to deal with this, don't you? We're told in the next section um, when uh, Jesus himself turns to the sword-wielding Peter and to the other apostles because when they came out and and one of the uh, servants of the high priest was, I imagine, maybe holding one of the torches that were coming forward and he came within proximity of Peter. Peter draws his sword and swipes at him. And the guy ducked enough to just have his ear cut off. In their midst, Jesus picks the guy's ear up and puts it back on. Heals him. And still, what do they do? They arrest him. But what did Jesus say to Peter and the other apostles? He said, put your sword back up. Or do you think that I cannot now pray my father and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? The armies of heaven. I don't know, I'm speculating a little bit. But I can't help believe that the angels in heaven, were at the ready. They were just, you know, give us the word. Say so. We're, you know. Jesus didn't even need the angels. He spoke his name, I am. And they fell on the ground. What do you think he would accomplish with 12 legions of angels? No wonder they wanted to make him king. He can never die. He can turn little food into much food. He can turn water into wine. He can raise the dead. If we had him as our king... We would never lose the kickball match. Jesus said, you're thinking wrong. You're thinking the wrong way. This is not what I came in the world to do. Because what you need is not a grandiose, mythological, powerful, superhuman. What you need is a Savior. 
and what no angel can do, Jesus does. And I don't mean healing the servants here. I don't mean banishing the demons. I don't mean speaking the word and having these 500 or so fall on their face. What Jesus does is forgive our sins because he paid for our sins. That's the thing we have to always keep before us. And Jesus disentangling the human and the demonic in this man and saving the man's soul, body, soul, and spirit and destroying the demons. That's the main thing of this story. So how can we as Christian believers stay grounded in biblical truth about the supernatural without on the one hand being shamed by rationalists and intellectualists who deny the supernatural and tell us we're fools because we believe in the supernatural. Well, I don't believe in anything that I can't verify with my senses or with my intellect. Well, that's what the Bible says is a fool. We're not the fool for believing in God. The ones who don't believe in God are the fools because the evidence of God is all around us and the things that we can't explain and the things that are regular so that we can't explain them. And then what do we do, on the other hand, not to be caught up in the trend of human imagination and superstitions re-imaged by technological sensationalism so easily morphing with ancient idolatries and false religions? Look, it may be well and wonderful that you go and, and I go and we're entertained by the cinema and we're entertained by these different things, but what we need to be aware of is how often they overlap and they morph these images out of ancient idolatries and false religions. Don't fool yourself. The mythologies and comic books that have come to the cinema are still steeped in old false religion, chaos and old night. It, it, it's interesting and it's fun to watch. But if it begins to impress you so that you think the Bible is like that, then you're in trouble. Can we distinguish between human imagination, between mythology and false religions? Can we distinguish between that and the truth of Scripture and the reality of the supernatural? We need to be trained up in the Word of God. Do we take the supernatural and false religions as seriously? in terms of our Christian life and worship as what Scripture warns us about? Sometimes I think we're naive. Sometimes I think we open ourselves up. Sometimes I think we're more interested in the entertainment of the world than we are in the truth of Scripture. And I say that as a caution for us all. And when we come to stories like this in the Bible, I know we're faced with some challenging things. What do we do about demon possession? We take it for what it's told in Scripture, and I think we go beyond that, not beyond Scripture, but we go beyond just the story to understand that Jesus has accomplished his mission and has destroyed the works of the devil. The demon's real? Yeah, they're real. The devil real? Yes, he's real. But he's on the run because Jesus is the victor. We need to be reminded, and we need to worship, and we need to bow down to the Lord Jesus, confessing he is the one who keeps us in life and death. He keeps us in this world and the world to come. And that's why we continue preaching the gospel to every generation because it's the power of God into salvation. What do we need? We need salvation. We need the saving grace of our God. And so I hope that you indeed will find the exposition of the gospel to be 
um, maturing and growing your faith as we look at these things that Jesus did, who Jesus is and what He did, and what He tells us He continues to do. Do you know that Jesus told the disciples that going to His Father after the resurrection and the ascension, going to His Father, that now greater things would be done than when He was on earth? Do you know that we're told that the salvation of a sinner coming to faith in Jesus Christ, the angels witness joy in the presence of God? The angels witness God's joy on sinners coming to repentance. We often get it backwards, don't we? We often want sensational things. We want something uh, sensational to happen, to wow us. We should be wowed with the power of the gospel. I'll tell you what wows me that Jesus promised that he will keep me and never let me go, although I live and walk in this world day in and day out, and at the end of the day, all I can pray sometimes is, thank you, Lord, that you didn't throw me away. I don't think I would have put up with me. So those promises keep us and carry us. And the Lord has given us this Lord's Supper to say, look, this is not a visit to the graveyard. When you're coming to this Lord's Supper... Jesus is saying, I am greater than what was witnessed in terms of my incarnation. Now I'm glorified and I'm back in heaven. But glorified is a promise that you too will receive the glorification in the life to come. So when we remember the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus, we're remembering that he is no longer in the tomb, that he is in heaven for us. And this Lord's Supper is intent on building our faith. That Jesus is more real to us by faith than these elements are to our physical senses. You know, I've said it many times. Do you believe that this is juice or wine in the cup? Do you believe that this is bread in the plate? It's not Coca-Cola and it's not a slice of apple or a slice of cheese. And no amount of your saying it is going to change that. You can't take that cup and start chanting, you are Coca-Cola, you are Coca-Cola. You won't be fooling anybody but yourself. You can't take this piece of bread and say, you are a piece of apple. You are a piece of apple. You won't be fooling anybody but yourself. But what what is Jesus saying to us? Jesus is saying, I am more real to you by faith than these elements are to your physical senses. Do you doubt these, these elements? Well, why would you doubt me? You don't doubt that this is juice or wine. You don't doubt that this is bread. Why would you doubt me? And that's what we're called, not to doubt the Lord Jesus. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we commune together, take His promises and our love and interest in one another that we're livingly united in Christ in the body. That's a wonderful mystery. It is something supernatural. It's the supernatural to celebrate. Now, remember we say this is not the table of Brookwood Presbyterian Church. It's the Lord's table. So if you identified with the Lord in baptism in the name of the uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that you're a member of a church that believes that Jesus is the Savior, not, you don't have to be a member of this church, and that you are not harboring unconfessed sin because we're told to examine ourselves before coming to the Lord's Supper because God forgives our sins and we're to forgive others as God forgives us. Then by all promises of God, take this Lord's Supper in faith. Commune together in the body of Christ, in the wonderful supernatural promises that are beyond this world, that keep us in this world through life and through death, that we too will be with Jesus. So we turn to our hymn of...
meditation and preparation this morning. Hymn number seven, uh, 471, "'Tis not that I did choose thee." Hymn number 471, you can remain seated as we sing as the elders come and prepare the table.